available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's edition of Outlook being recorded on Wednesday the 18th of October. And uh, in this edition, um, Margaret will be visiting Paxton's um, Arboretum for the last time, the characters are there. Uh, Bill will be talking about the Freeman's catalogue and how, the, how it's now become a thing of the past as the internet's taken over. So, uh, yes, and then we'll be talking about a young girl called Ellie Goldstein. Uh, she has got um, Down syndrome, but she is a model. And we're talking to her with uh, her mum as well, and Cassidy Delgado. Now, do you know what mobile troubles are? I certainly don't, but we'll find out all when Margaret reads, reads this piece, another by Susie Dent. And hurdy-gurdy days, of course, are back again with Alan, telling us about history and Coventry at the turn of the century. And we're going to conclude this programme by visiting the Black Country Museum again with Dave. They're concluding their visit to find out how things have changed since Graham was a young lad of 16 and they visited at that time. So that's all what's coming on, on the main things. But there's all, also, of course, all the news from the centre, sport and your post bag. But as ever, we're going to start with the news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Plans to develop a huge part of Coventry Centre have been delayed after new rules on fire safety were brought in over the summer. Some buildings in the £450 million City Centre South scheme are being altered to add extra staircases following government changes in July. The project, years in the making, has also recently been hit with inflation challenges, according to the Council. An application with detailed designs for Phase 1 will now go in later than the planned spring-summer 2023 date, which has already passed. Buildings being replaced by the scheme will not be knocked down until next year, meaning businesses and community groups can stay over Christmas. This includes the LTB showrooms, a grassroots art group based in the Old Litton Tree pub, which can now stay until March 2024. Andy Fancy, the managing director at the Hill Group, said... We remain committed to the delivery of Coventry City Centre South. However, following government announcements on building regulations and fire safety in July, we are having to revise the scheme design accordingly. A reserved matters application for the first phase will be submitted towards the end of the year. In the interim, we are progressing with various investigation works around the site in anticipation of demolition starting next year. A Coventry City Council spokesperson said, City Centre South is still on track. The changes necessary have allowed us to enable those businesses that want to trade through the Christmas period to do so. City Centre South will redevelop a key part of the city centre, enhancing the quality of life for everyone living in and using the centre, including local people and visitors. It represents hundreds of millions of pounds of new private sector investment, which will create approximately 1,500 new homes, as well as shops, leisure and public spaces. 
The City Centre South project will replace buildings at the City Arcade, Bullyard, Hartford Street and Shelton Square. Originally planned for a large department store, car park and other retail offerings, the major regeneration scheme changed tack in 2020 to a focus on housing. The latest plans for 1,300 homes, cinema and hotel were changed again last year to add 200 homes and cut retail space amid shifts in shopping habits. The number of COVID cases in England and Wales has started to fall after an initial rise in the start of the autumn. There are a total of 15,800 new cases of the disease in England in the week leading up to October the 7th, according to the latest government figures. That's the equivalent of 27.9 new cases for every 100,000 people in the country, and down from 28.6 for every 100,000 at the same point a week earlier. The situation in Coventry mirrors the picture nationally, with cases falling in recent days. 99 new cases were recorded in the city in the seven days to October the 7th. Cases of COVID have been rising steadily in England since the beginning of the summer, which peaked at 29.3 for every 100,000 on October the 2nd, before declining to the latest figure. The prevalence of COVID varies, lo- varies by locality. Chesterfield has more cases per 100,000 people than any other local authority in the country, with a rate of 58.1 per 100,000 living there. Coventry City Council has sought to set the record straight over fears it could go bust unless it is given more funding. It has been just over a week since the local authority said there is a real risk that it will face bankruptcy next year unless it gets more funding from the government. Council leader George Duggins explained that the problem stems from long-term government underfunding and the recent surge in inflation. He warned that if the situation does not change and the council is forced to issue a 114 notice next year, services such as parks and libraries could be hit. But the announcement has left many asking questions, including the council's timing of its announcement of financial troubles during the same week as the Conservative Party conference, as well as claims from some residents that cash has been wasted on projects. Some have questioned what the council does with its funding, and some allege that cash had been wasted on road projects and cycle lanes. There is clear evidence that shows that Coventry City Council has been, and continues to be, underfunded. The city receives one of the lowest funding per head of the population in the country at £821. It is the lowest in the West Midlands and way below the national England average of £910. Additional funding of £17 million a year would bring Coventry up to the average national position. The Council says there is independent evidence that showing there is a compelling case. As well as the examples given above, Coventry featured prominently in an independent report published by the Institute of Fiscal Studies in August 2023. Within it, the report singles out Coventry as an area whose local government services are underfunded, 
by around £50 million based on relative need. Also, the council is accused of spending money on things such as bicycle lanes, regeneration projects and the work in Spon End, which they deny. They said that Coventry City Council has been very good at, for many years, is successfully applying for external funding for specific projects that can only be spent on the schemes the money has been awarded to. Projects such as the Bindley and Cowden cycle lanes have been paid for by a number of such grants and not from council taxpayers' money. Similarly, regeneration projects such as Friargate and City Centre South are almost exclusively funded by such grants. This was also the same for the work in Spon End, which incidentally also meant the city did not have a congestion charge imposed that some drivers would have had to pay. A deal for the West Midlands worth £1.5 billion will go before Coventry City Council next week. It includes huge funding boosts for the region of up to £500 million for homes, including £100 million in brownfield funding. And Coventry's council could benefit by £3 million per year under a scheme to retain business rates, according to a council report on the plans. The report also reveals Coventry Airport has been put forward as a national investment zone for the region, rather than as one of six smaller growth zones in the deal. The airport is the site of a planned gigafactory, and Coventry City Council said this week the project is in an advanced talk with investors. It had been proposed as one of the six levelling up zones, now known as growth zones, for the region under the initial deal approved in March. Leveling up zones have a value of up to half a billion pounds to the region, the report said. Other elements of the planned deal include 25 million pounds worth of funding for digital, cultural and environmental projects in the West Midlands. The region will also be allowed to keep 70 million pounds of the Commonwealth Games funding underspend and there will be a scheme to devolve funding for net zero projects to the area by 2025. The devolution deal is the third of its kind between the government and the West Midlands combined authority. The plans need to be ratified by all seven councils in the WMCA before getting final approval later this year. Coventry's proposed West Midlands Gigafactory is the only site available in the UK with planning permission for a large-scale battery production facility with enough to capacity to power 600,000 electric vehicles. At the Labour Party conference last week, Coventry City Council's Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, Councillor Jim O'Boyle, said he hoped that with UK government support, the project would secure an investor. Several Asian battery manufacturers are interested in the site. In addition, we are well positioned to become an investment zone which will deliver significant additional tax incentive and breaks for future investors. It is a prime location, offering future investors an all-in-one solution for the battery manufacturing, research, industrialisation and recycling. The West Midlands Gigafactory could create up to 6,000 new jobs 
as well as protect and create tens of thousands more in the automotive supply chain. The zone would include the Coventry Airport site and adjacent employment land, which could be used to support the battery and automotive supply chain. A significant number of the 7,000 jobs Southern Trent intends to create as part of a 12.9 billion growth plan will be based in Coventry. CEO Liv Garfield says it's only right that the city which is home to ST's headquarters and two other bases sees a tangible benefit from the ambitious proposals. One unfortunate offshoot of the massive investment as it speeds up its commitment to be net zero by 2030 is an increase in water bills. The vast majority of the water company's 4.1 million households will see bills rise from an average of £379 in 24-25 to £518 in 29-30. By 2030, the cost of a bill is set to be 1.3% of disposable income of a typical household compared with 1.2% today. Mrs Garfield, who became the youngest female leader of a FTSE 100 firm when she took over ST in April 2014, says, said the benefits of the scheme would far outweigh any negatives. And the 48-year-old also said the investment would help the company to clean up its act on sewerage entering the rivers, prevent, better prevent, better prevent and create, better prevent and react to leaks and improve connect, connectivity. We've got about 1,500 people based here every day. That's just in our HQ in St. John Street, Liv said. When you go further out to the surrounding area, there will be 2,700 people. We'll definitely be growing either the Finham region or Coventry region HQ, so there will be more jobs coming into Coventry. We'll probably see 500 new jobs between now and next April, so quite a good number of jobs in the next few months, and probably another 500 jobs in the six months thereafter. Of the new jobs, 1,500 will be employed directly in the business, and the remainder within the water company's extensive supply chain. They will enable thousands of new work experience placements, apprenticeships and internships, the company said. On rising water bills, Mrs Garfield said it was important for the company to be transparent to enable households to budget properly. About £550 million of the support will be made available to ST's poorest customers. The new price for the new regulatory period doesn't kick in until 2025, so you'll still see little normal increases between now and then. But you'll see the first wave of investment going in during 2025. That's the first time you'll see some of the bigger charges go onto your bill. A number of water companies have been fined heavily in recent months for illegally discharging raw sewage into seas and rivers. Seven Trent is not considered to be one of the UK's worst offenders, but the company still has been the target of protests in Coventry. Scores of pubs have been put forward for special protection in response to a West Midlands Combined Authority campaign to save cherished locals from closure. The WMCA and Campaign for Real Ale, Camera, List Your Local campaign has received more than 155 nominations. The scheme has proved so popular that no less than 50 of the nominations have come from outside the West Midlands, and several pubs received multiple nominations. 
It seems there are 65 individual pubs now on the list. Of these, 25 are considered so valuable they already have Historic England Heritage listed status, but the remaining 40 have no protection at all. A target list was compiled last month of suitable heritage pubs which could benefit from the scheme, including Coventry's Townwalk Tavern in the city centre. The WMCA and Camera launched the campaign to better protect the region's public houses in the wake of the fire and subsequent demolition of the famous Crooked House in Himley in Staffordshire. The List Your Local campaign encourages residents to submit applications for Historic England and Asset of Community Value listing. The WMCA and Camera have drawn up a target list of suitable heritage pubs, which, alongside the public's recommendation, will be examined on a case-by-case basis to see if how and when they can be protected. Options include heritage listing, Asset of Community Value Listing or Community Ownership. The impact of crime and the feeling of being safe in Coventry is always a topic residents bring up when asked about living in the city. It's hard to deny that Coventry has had its issue with crime. According to Crime Rate, Coventry is the safest city in the West Midlands with its overall crime rate of 11 crimes per 1,000 people last year. However, the city was considered the most dangerous for burglary in 2022, recording 27 crimes. Coventry isn't a perfect city. Like many other cities where incidents do occur, like stabbings and hit and runs, there have been some horrible crimes in recent years. One person commented, Coventry City is not a safe place anymore. I wouldn't go out on my own when it's dark around my area, which used to be a brilliant area. Another added, I used to love going to the city centre, but now I don't go unless I absolutely have to. A further comment said, My wife and I regularly visit the town centre, visiting the Belgrade and Albany theatres, but always go by taxi, as we do not feel safe walking. Coventry is not what it used to be, and feel it will only get worse. Nightlife has suffered due due to the crime and violence. However, some were more were in disagreement and said it's a safe place, but it's the same in most silent downs nowadays. A positive comment was, I think the city centre has vastly improved, especially around Cathedral Lanes. Lovely places to eat and drink. The clothes shops could definitely be improved, but I feel just as safe in Coventry as anywhere else. A plea has been made by the HMRC for people to check if they are owed £2,000. A specific age range of people are eligible for a child trust fund. The government department has said that around 430,000 people aged between 18 and 21 have not yet claimed the cash, reports Birmingham Live. Those who were born between 2002 and 2005 may be eligible for a payout for the long-term tax-free savings account. Children born between 1st of September 2002 and 2nd of January 2011 can apply for the fund. According to HMRC, there are currently 5.3 million open child trust fund accounts, which means young people aged 16 or over can take control of. 
but they cannot withdraw funds until they turn 19. Statistics have revealed that more than 500,000 mature child trust accounts have been claimed or transferred into an ISA since the oldest children in the scheme turned 18 in September 2020. However, thousands of pounds could still be waiting for anyone who is yet to still claim their savings. Many 18 to 21 year olds are starting out in first jobs or apprenticeships, starting university or moving into their first home. And their child trust fund is a pot of money with their name on, said Angela MacDonald, HMRC's second permanent secretary and deputy chief executive. I would encourage young people to use the online tool or track it down for parents of teenagers to speak to them to ensure they're aware of their child trust fund. It could make a real difference to their future plans. The money in a child trust fund has the potential to be life-changing and the lack of knowledge about them shows the importance of financial education and financial planning from a young age. Two West Midlands police officers have won national awards. Detective Constable Georgia Walden and Police Constable Nuafa Ali have been recognised at Police Now's National Alumni Impact Awards for their outstanding contributions to frontline policing. Georgia was presented with the Brilliant Investigation Award for her excellent investigative skills in a stranger rape case resulting in a life sentence for a violent offender. While Nilofa was awarded the Outstanding Leadership Award for championing diversity and inclusion within the force and her ability to inspire and motivate others to achieve positive change. The annual Alumni Impact Awards celebrate the achievements of officers across England and Wales who have graduated from Police Now's two-year programmes and have gone above and beyond to reduce crime, support their communities and build public trust and confidence in policing. Detective Constable Georgia Walden was the officer in charge for a violent stranger rape investigation which was later covered on BBC's The Real Forensics. Georgia, who joined the West Midlands Police in 2021, led the complex investigation and delivered exceptional support to the victim. With support from the brave victim, the team were able to identify, arrest and interview a suspect. DC George Waldron, who studied media and marketing at the University of Leicester and worked as a waitress before joining the service, said, My priority was to support and secure justice for a young woman who had gone through the most traumatic event of her life. This case was a great example of a team coming together to build a case file and secure charges swiftly while the suspect was still in custody. PC Nirufar Ali uh, joined the force in 2019 and later completed the Frontline Leadership Programme which supports outstanding constables to progress into leadership roles. Nilofar confidently collaborated with officers of senior ranks to identify opportunities to create more inclusive cultures. Within this role, Nilofar has raised awareness of the diverse experiences and issues affecting officers within the force, aiming to break down stigmas and encourage open and inclusive conversations. 
She also networks with the Home Office and College of Policing to discuss ways that diversity and inclusion can be further incorporated into training new officers, particularly around the experience of black officers. Hundreds of automotive jobs in Coventry and Warwickshire are understood to be at risk following the near collapse of one of the first electric HGV companies. Volta Trucks has filed for bankruptcy following a struggle to secure batteries for its lorries. While headquartered in Stockholm in Sweden, where the firm has filed for bankruptcy, Volta Trucks has most of its businesses and engineering operations in the UK. Around 600 of its staff are based at hubs in Coventry, Nuneaton, Ashhorn, and its UK main office in Reading. In a statement released by the board, the company said its imminent move to file for administration in the UK had been taken with deep and sincere regret. The board has not taken this course easily or lightly and is fully aware of the significant impact this will have on the organisation's dedicated workforce as well as customers and partners, the statement said. But the firm has faced challenges all along the way with its most recent setback being its battery supplier Proterra filing for bankruptcy. Volta Truck said this has had a significant impact on their manufacturing plans, reducing the volume of vehicles that we had forecast to produce. It added, the uncertainty with our battery supplier also negatively affected our ability to raise sufficient capital in an already challenging capital-raising environment for electric vehicle players. Volta Trucks was established in 2019, creating the first purpose-built 16-ton electric truck on a unique cab. First customer deliveries of its HGVs were expected in Sweden this year. Delighted staff and students have been celebrating in more ways than one since the Coventry School opened its new £38 million home. West Coventry Academy in Tile Hill Lane opened the doors to its state-of-the-art new building in September after a two-year rebuild. One of ten pioneering new schools nationwide constructed with lower carbon content materials and designed to produce near net zero emissions, the school has been hailed as a feat of eco-friendly engineering. And just weeks after opening, staff learned of another achievement when Ofsted upgraded the school status to good following a two-day inspection in September. The report represents major progress in respect to the Academy's last inspection in October 2019 when it was graded requires improvement. The report details the significant improvements we have made since the school's last inspection, particularly around the curriculum and outcomes. The inspectors also commented on how proud our students are to attend West Coventry Academy and how quickly they have settled into the new building. Inspectors praise the Academy providing a wide range of opportunities to nurture and stretch pupils' talents and interests, and praise teachers' subject knowledge. Pupils are taught to be respectful, responsible, resilient, and ready to learn, the report said. The school works closely with parents and carers to ensure that they, have underst that they understand the school's values and know how to help their children succeed, Ofsted said. Students were proud to show off their new building and singled out six formers as an asset to the school. 
Presenter Jay Blades, best known for BBC's The Repair Shop, said that Coventry and the West Midlands quietly revolutionised the world in his new series on Channel 5. Fans have shared their excitement ahead of the three-part series which started on Wednesday last week. Jay will travel through locations such as Coventry, Birmingham and Wolverhampton in the Midlands through time. He will visit Coventry Cathedral and discover the truth behind the legend of Lady Godiva. He previously took part in the series Jay Blade's East End Through Time, which explored his life growing up in London. Jay said that other cities deserve a better reputation, adding that their importance will not be forgotten on my watch. Jay said, I have lived in the West Midlands since 2015. It is often overlooked, but the reality is that without the humble West Midlands, the history of the UK, indeed the world, would not have been the same. Filming has been fascinating, surprising and eye-opening in equal measures. Sharing this series with you will be an utter pleasure and a tribute to the place I am proud to call home. Daniel Pearl, commissioning editor at Channel 5, said... Jay has the most incredible ability to unpack history in a way that brings the stories alive for the viewer. His friendly charm and insightful explanation of the areas so close to him personally make him hugely popular with viewers and we are delighted to be exploring the powerhouse region of the West Midlands with him. Part 2 of Jay Blades, The Midlands Through Time, is at 9pm on Channel 5 this Wednesday, the 18th, with one more next Wednesday. Outlook News. And uh, that concludes the roundup of the local news with Elaine and myself. Uh, we have the usual one announcement. I'm sure you've all realised it's getting much darker in the evening and, and getting darker earlier in, in, I beg your pardon, much darker in the morning and getting darker earlier in the evening. In fact, sunrise is now at 7.37 with sunset at 6.07 in the evening. So that's all we've got for announcements, but we have some more news for you now, and here is Hugh with news from the centre here. Hello, Hugh. Hello, everybody. Well, uh, the reason I'm recording this today um, without being in the studio with everybody else is that we are off to see the Lord Mayor, Joe and I, uh, this afternoon. Uh, as you may know, we're one of the Lord Mayor's chosen charities this year, so we're going to have a chat about uh, fundraising activities and various other things that he's doing and how we can support him. So uh, that should be kind of nice. Look out for photos of us, um, or we'll tell you about it next week. Um, so, there's a few things to check through with you. Now, I told you last week that we were having a new phone system installed. That new phone system has now been installed, and you will know when you call in now that the options have changed, so please do listen carefully to those. Uh, for the talking newspaper, you can still press 5 and come through and leave a message on the uh, talking newspaper's phone uh, so that they can use everything that you uh, talk about for uh, postbag. 
we are sorry if sometimes you get cut off. We're still getting used to the system. Uh, it's it's reasonably easy. Uh, the quality of the lines are much better, we find, but um, just uh, we're still getting used to it. So please bear with us on that front. Uh, we just want to make you aware that uh, we've uh, confirmed a date now for our winter warmer, uh, the Christmas Bazaar, which is going to be on Saturday the 2nd of December. Uh, and that's going to be uh, in Boston Lodge, uh, in the um, main room there. And then uh, we're going to have um, a cafe set up as well uh, for warming soups and things like... Uh, well, possibly batches, but we'll see. Uh, also, uh, coffee, tea, Bailey's coffee, mulled wine, that sort of thing. You know the drill. Uh, we will have a tombola and a raffle going on that day. So, uh, as we are wont to do in these circumstances, uh, if anybody has any unwanted gifts or things that they would like to donate for the tombola or the raffle, uh, we'd be very pleased to receive them. And if you could uh, bring them into reception and leave them there with either Heather or Carol, um, I would be very, very grateful. Um, anything designed for the tombola should be um, sort of things that could fit in those uh, bottle bags, the, the gift bottle bag things. Um, smallish in other words or bottle shaped those are always very popular um, thank you very much in advance for that um, now uh, we have talking of fundraising um, things we uh, I have mentioned before but we are um, part of one of the 40 charities uh, benefiting from this year's uh, Global's Make Some Noise campaign um, I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago but I can't remember so I'm telling you again um, Global uh, they uh, run Classic FM and Heart FM and uh, LBC and all sorts of very big uh, uh, radio stations uh, and they have this annual fundraising campaign called Make Some Noise um, and uh, this year they raised over three million pounds and we will be getting a portion of that uh, which is absolutely brilliant news um, that will go to support um, running the IT uh, uh, classes throughout the year um, and uh, a number of other things as well I should imagine uh, we have new class starting. Tai Chi um, makes a very welcome return. Uh, tai Chi uh, is going to, it's a very slow martial art, very good for you, very good for your core strength, very good for uh, your, it has a really strong meditative quality about it. If you've seen um, uh, images ever of uh, People in China, elderly people often, uh, waving their arms around and moving very slowly around in parks very early in the morning. That's Tai Chi that they're doing. Anyway, uh, we've offered it before here and it uh, proved very popular until COVID um, wiped it all away. But as of this Thursday, uh, tomorrow as I speak to you, um, the Tai Chi class uh, is restarting um, and it runs on Thursdays from 2 until 3 p.m. So if we've still got uh, plenty of space on that class. We've got um, people signed up already. There's still uh, plenty of space. So if you fancy doing that, please do get in contact with us. Call us on the centre 024 7671 uh, Go through to reception and they will all uh, they will sign you up for it. Um, you'll need to talk to Claire if you need the bus, uh, but then, uh, well, once we've got you signed up, then we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you as well. 
Uh, the theatre trip uh, for next week is now closed, so if you wanted to come uh, but hadn't got around to it, I'm sorry, you're too late. Um, now, uh, the next thing... Oh, we have a new person who's going to be um, sort of joining the team for a bit. Um, this, uh, the City Council uh, operates supported internships um, for people who struggle to get into work. Anyway, we have a lovely young man called Zach who's uh, going to be joining us um, from this Friday and he'll be uh, working here on Wednesdays and Fridays and he's going to be doing more to support our uh, uh, social media um, marketing effort so he's going to be uh, posting things around so he may well pop into a group every now and again uh, and or take part in groups and just find out what's going on if you've got anything that you think oh that would be a nice thing to spread around or oh I've got a little bit of story about you know how things have improved more for me here etc etc then um, you know let us know and uh, we can uh, get Zach to put that up on um, Facebook and we might even go into Instagram and other things you never know it's all a bit of a this is why we've got a young person in because I don't know what I'm talking about um, so that's uh, so, so that's going to be look so look out for Zach he'll be around for um, months and months and months I do hope um, I think uh, everybody will re really enjoy meeting him he's a funny guy um, and finally, uh, a little bit of sad news, more sad news, uh, too much of it um, to to end on. Um, Elizabeth Alden, who uh, attended uh, the Monday Club and did stuff with devices, um, sadly uh, died uh, a week ago, uh, Friday. Um, we found out about uh, about about that only only last Friday. Uh, so. Um, we remember her with great great fondness and um, and uh, she had a number of like physical challenges later on in life and health challenges later on in life but that absolutely did not stop her wanting to get into the centre as much as possible and she used to get absolutely furious mostly with herself if she couldn't manage it so um, you know, Elizabeth was a huge support for um, many of the activities and uh, the um, events that we uh, operated um, uh, like the winter warmer and the summer garden party for so many years um, until in aged infirmity unfortunately caught up with her so I say we remember her with great fondness if anybody wants details of her funeral uh, please do contact me and let me know right uh, that is it um, if uh, you have any questions or comments to make please get in contact with us in the usual ways and I will be back with you next week Great, thanks you. Uh, I guess we'll be seeing you again next week as well with more news. Thanks so much. Sport, of course, is carrying on all around us, and our sports mad presenter, Sarah, has torn herself away from her iPad, television and radio to tell you what's been happening over the last week. Outlook Sport. Well, hidey hi there, listeners, and welcome to this week's sport. Now, I'm going to start with a PS from last week. I'm going to take you back to the gymnastics, because I didn't mention any medals that Great Britain had won. You may remember last year when they were held in Liverpool, the team won, the women won silver, the men won bronze, 
Gaza, uh, Jessica Gazarova won quite a few medals, etc., etc. Well, I didn't mention them last week because it was until up until that point we hadn't won any medals. But then up stepped Jake Jarman on the vault and did a Yonakoru vault which is complex enough to pronounce, let alone do, but it involves a lot of twisting and a lot of somersaults. And he took gold. So well done there, Jake. Meanwhile, as if she can't get any more wonderful, Simone Biles won gold on both the floor and the beam and finished second on the vault. Oh, Simone, you really are a star. And now to more traditional stuff, starting with football. Now, as I said last week, Coventry City weren't playing because there was this, this international break. Two matches. First of all, a friendly, if you can have a friendly against Australia... And we won, one goal to nil, thanks to a goal by Ollie Watkins of the Villa. Now, as I'm recording, which is the Monday, Tuesday, which is tomorrow, we're taking on Italy, which is slightly, well, a lot actually, more important because it's a qualifying match for the Euro 2024s. So, come on, England, or, well, you'll all know the result by the time you hear this, but from my perspective, come on, England. Now, going down a lot of leagues, it was a good weekend for Leamington because they weren't playing, unlike Nuneaton and Stratford. Nuneaton Borough lost one goal to two at home to Barwell, while Stratford ventured north a bit up to Telford and lost two goals to nil. Come on, ye locals. And now we turn to rugby. You know, in the code of the union played with the ovoid-shaped ball. Now, there was no Coventry match. I believe it's probably because the sort of Premier and the Championship are on a World Cup break, a bit like the football and the international break I referred to earlier. So, we headed to the quarterfinals in that World Cup. And going into the quarters, we still had three of the home nations represented. So, I'll cover them in the order they played. Wales, my number two side, lost to Argentina. 17 points to 29. Although, I have to say, and I'm not being partisan here... Well, not much anyway. That score does favour Argentina because there was no way they were as dominant as the score would suggest. In fact, at one stage, Wales led 10-0. Oh, well, boys. Now, 
our second home nation, well, plus friends, Ireland, were headed into the World Championship, as you may recall, ranked number one in the world. They hadn't lost something like the last 33 matches. I know they romped away with the Triple Crown and the Grand Slam, but they were playing New Zealand, one of the former winners. Now, Ireland had never made it out of the quarterfinals before. And I'm afraid they still haven't made it out of the quarterfinals because they lost to New Zealand 24 points to 28. But it was very nip and tuck towards the end. And it was really quite an exciting game to watch. Now, Ireland are managed by the former England player, Andy Farrell. Remember that name? I'll be talking sort of about him in a bit. And so, England versus Fiji. Well, the commentary reminded us that by the commentator that the last time England played Fiji was in a friendly warm-up match at Twickenham a few months ago and Fiji beat us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, England weren't playing by the same script and they really came out of the starting gate and they really scored, started strongly and they led until about the 70th minute when Fiji equalised and the score was 24 points all. Cue the commentator to remind us, yes, well, of course, the last time England played Fiji, dot, dot, dot. It was a very nervy final 10 minutes. Yes, rugby matches are 80 minutes, not like football, which is 90. Sort of the two sides didn't know whether to battle hard or play cautiously in case they conceded. But Owen Farrell, son of the aforementioned Irish manager, oh, Andy, Owen Farrell grabbed the ball and kicked it up and scored a drop goal. Similar kick to the one that Johnny Wilkinson used to beat Australia in Australia in the final. England led by three points. Then one of our young players grabbed the ball and headed off fast as he could to the try line. But he was stopped on about the 21 metre line. But we were awarded a penalty. Up steps Owen Farrell again. Kicks. Score. England lead by six points. Cue the commentator to say, yes, but if Fiji win a score a try and they get a conversion, that will be seven points. And remember the last time we played Fiji was at Twickenham. Yes, all right, we get the point. 
there were then three extra minutes at the end. In total, they played 83 minutes. But England won 30 points to 24. Whew, that's a relief. So, who would we play in the semi-finals? Well, that was up to the final quarter-final where South Africa took on France. Now, I waxed and waned over who I supported. Sometimes, yes, come on, South Africa, you can do it. We don't want to play the hosts and go into that stadium on Saturday baying for English blood. No, 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 scrub that. I'm going to support France. We don't want to play the current champions who beat us in the final last time. Well, anyway, it was a very, very, very tight and exciting match. And it finished South Africa 29 points, France 28 points. So we head to the semi-finals. On this week, as I speak, on Friday, Argentina will play New Zealand, kick off at 8pm. And then on Saturday, England will play South Africa, again, kick off at 8pm. Coverage of both matches is on ITV and on Radio 5 Live. And finally, hell hath truly frozen over. Well, from my perspective anyway. Los Angeles, who are hosting the Olympics in 2028, it's their third time, lucky people. Mind you, London have held it three times as well. But they have just announced the five sports they are having extras each host city is allowed to nominate a list of sports and then they're teased down a little bit by the IOC. And so the final five have been announced. Now these are all ones which apparently they're trying to grow or have already grown in Los Angeles. So introduced we have squash, Good, bad time too. Lacrosse, which is apparently big in American colleges now. American tag football. Mm-hmm. Softball. And the one you've all been waiting for. Cricket! <sighs> the only problem is that apparently there's a ceiling on the maximum number of athletes the games can have, which is 10,500. Well, a lot of them are team sports and are really going to test that maximum number. Anyway, that has been your sport, and I'll allow you to ponder cricket in the Olympics. <sighs> It will be the T20 format. Bye. Have a great week. So, there you are. Five more sports to be included at Los Angeles in 2028.
But I have to admit my ignorance and say I didn't realise that squash and football weren't already included. And now from sport we move to your slot and outlook postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hi there. Graham starts off your postbag this week with a nice message for Rosie, whose retirement was announced at the Volunteers Party and on Outlook. He also responds to the story I told about the lady who was driving while knitting. The policeman drove alongside her car and shouted, Pull over! And the lady replied by saying, No, it's a pair of socks. Here's Graham. Well, I'd like to uh, wish Rosie Brady uh, the best of luck in her retirement. I think she's put a lot of work into the resource centre and I believe she's done it all voluntary. And, uh, but you have to give up some time. And uh, I just hope she's able to enjoy her retirement and the rest of her life. So, uh, good luck, Rosie. Uh, the story which uh, Dave told us about the uh, pullover and the socks um, reminds me of the two crisps. I don't know whether you heard about it, but uh, there were these two crisps on the side of the road. And a lolly pulled up. And he says, uh, would you two crisps like a lift? And one of the crisps looked up and said, no, thank you, we're both walkers. Oh, well, suit yourself. Well, thank you, Graham. That gave me a laugh. And if you'd like to share a joke in postbag with your fellow listeners, please send it in. We like to cheer people up, and Edwina likes to lift your spirits too. Here's a tip from her to lighten your mood. Hi, everybody. I hope everybody keeping well and happy. There are a few of you who do suffer depression, especially as the darker winter months come. I thought I would let you know that if you take vitamin D, it will help you. Vitamin D gives you calcium, the same as the sun does. And of course the sunshine does lift one's spirit. I just thought I would mention it. Take care everybody. Bye. Now we have a special guest in postbag. Forty years ago, the land speed record was broken on Black Rock Desert, Nevada, in Thrust 2 by Richard Noble. Here he is to say hello to you from the Coventry Museum of British Road Transport. Hello, Coventry Talking Newspaper. I'm Richard Noble, and I'm here at Coventry, and we've got a day where we're just... Uh, um, uh, meeting all our supporters and friends and of course it's also the 40th anniversary of breaking the world land speed record and um, it wasn't supposed to last as long as that but um, it certainly has and we've had a very enjoyable day and uh, I, I hope you enjoy this and thank you
Richard Noble previously described on Outlook in an interview I did with him on what it was like to drive Thrust 2 and later what Andy Green would have experienced in the supersonic car Thrust SSC, achieving a record that's never been beaten. Late listener Dr. Jeffrey King was given the unique experience to get up close and feel the contours of Thrust 2, and gave a beautiful description for the listeners to Outlook, which he sent into Postbag. And from the Resource Centre, Pete Smith, who drove a car very fast round the track once, gives us this description of a very recent musical night out. On Saturday the 7th of this month, I, I had an invitation to visit this hall in the town um, uh, near the cathedral, and there was a concert there. It was well attended by, you know, different guests. It involved the, uh, a music orchestral group called the Eclectics. And I thought, just thought to put it out there that it was a very good afternoon and uh, there was a lot going on and um, it was just a good event with lots of music, popular things from uh, Le Miserable, um, different other things and it was, you know, the, the music was an orchestral thing and they were all, they played very well. Thank you, Pete, for sharing that with us. Glad you enjoyed it. I got a ticket from the Nostalgic Singing Group for a free concert at Warwick University Arts Centre. I went there on the 12X bus from Pool Meadow and back on the 11. It was a great evening, and Julia had a nice time at a coffee morning. Here she is to tell you about it. I went with Wendy to the communal lounge for a Macmillan Cancer charity coffee afternoon. We had a cup of tea. I know it was a coffee afternoon, but I'm a rebel. And I won a tub of Quality Street and didn't save any for my fat friend John. I won some coconut body lotion too and had a macaroon with my tea. Am I the only person who makes a profit out of charity events? And now, here's my money quiz answers. It's all about the money, money, honey. Well, first of all, those questions from Julia again. 1. Where are the bumps on the notes? 2. Where are the notes made? 3. What material? 4. Why are the notes made from that material? 5. Why are the coins milled? 6. How many sides has a £1 coin? 7. What year did the £1 coin stop? Some coins are milled to make them harder to forge. The 50 pence and 20 pence coins have 7 sides each and the £1 coin has 12. The paper money is made out of polymer, which is 
ground-up parrots, polyethic, because it's durable even when wet. They are made in Essex, where my friend John comes from. The old one-pound coin stopped in 2017 because people were using shopping trolley tokens instead. The coins are minted in Wales. The notes with a picture of the king on will be out in 2024. The bumps on the notes are to aid visually impaired people to identify them. They are on the left-hand side at the top, if you hold them the right way up. The £10 note has two bumps, the £20 note has three, the £50 note has four, and the £5 note has none. If you got all of these right, my friend John will give you £50 each. A £50 note, lots of love, Julia. Well, thanks and well done to Graham, who sent in his answers into Postbag, because Graham said that the one-pound coin has 12 sides, but 14 if you take into account heads and tails. Good point. The five-pound note has no bumps, though. I had to check. And, of course, the notes are made of plastic, which makes them more durable. I asked the questions to the Monday Club, who got pretty much the same answers. They said that because the coins are milled round the edges, they help there to help visually impaired people, which is also true. The plastic notes are more durable. So well done, especially to Graham, for making the effort to phone in the answers. I saw a new coin. I think I saw a picture of a new coin, actually. I think it was a 50 pence piece, and he had quite a nice gentle smile on his face, looking from right to left. And how are you with handling money, or paying by switch with your bank card? A member of the singing group, Ian Harris, who has to be remembered to Graham Whale, uh, tried to buy me an ice cream from Warwick University Arts Centre, but came back empty-handed because he couldn't pay by cash. Is that a problem with you? As Pete Walters asked you last week, do you have any thoughts on HS2? Now it's only going between London and Birmingham and not up north to Manchester. Thank you for your messages this week. Uh, please send a comment for next time. It's dead east to phone us up. Just phone 02476717522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and start speaking. Or any other way you feel happiest. OK, thank you and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So that was your Postbag for this week from Dave. Now, many of the characters in Paxton's Arboretum in London Road Cemetery had fascinating lives, though we may never have heard much about them before. 
Now here's Margaret with her final selection, taken from the Heritage Park Times Historic Coventry of 2023. Nathaniel Troughton In life, Nathaniel Troughton was much admired for his work as a doctor in helping to found Coventry's first hospital. But his legacy now lives on much more as a skilled chronicler of the mid-Victorian city he knew. Born in Hampshire into a family with strong Coventry connections, Troughton and his wife Augusta moved to the city in 1826, settling at 11 Priory Row close to Holy Trinity Church. He set up in practice as a doctor and mindful of Coventry's appalling state of public health, was among those driving a campaign to set up the city's first proper hospital in a house in Little Park Street in 1840. He became a trustee, secretary, fundraiser, and one of the three house surgeons at the new Coventry and Warwickshire Hospital, later rebuilt on a much larger site in Stony Stanton Road. When he wasn't engaged on medical matters, Troughton liked to rise at four or five in the morning in summer and go out with his sketchbook, making pencil drawings of Coventry's prolific medieval buildings. His volumes of pencil sketches, more than a thousand in number, were presented to the city in 1892, more than 20 years after his death. They showed a post-medieval city Many of its ancient buildings and architectural treasures long lost before the devastation that the Luftwaffe inflicted on Coventry. Mary Eves By the time of her death in December 1875, midwife Mary Eves had safely delivered a staggering 4,438 babies. The illiterate wife of a ribbon weaver from Sponend, over a 35-year career, Mary was clearly trusted to minister to the city's poor and its wealthy alike. The records show many repeat customers from all walks of life. Sworn in as a midwife in July 1849, Mary, herself a mother of seven, averaged an astonishing 200 births a year. In one year, 1857, she delivered 286 babies, and on one day, January the 13th, 1865, she attended to five different women, all in different locations. Where Mary acquired her midwifery skills isn't known, although there's a clue in the 1841 census, which reveals that her neighbour, an older woman named Elizabeth Roberts was a midwife. A hundred years before the NHS, with healthcare still primitive, it was often the case that skills were passed on in this way. Whatever the source of Mary's expertise, there must have been many who had good reason to mourn her passing when she died from bronchitis on the 11th of December 1875 at her home at 97 Spon Street. With the recent dramatic increase of internet shopping, many businesses have had to change the way they operate in order to survive. 
Many of you will be familiar with the bulky Freeman's mail order catalogue coming through your letterbox each year, but now a victim of changing buying patterns, and so is no more. This has been written by Daniel Jones and is read by Bill. It offered credit for the masses for the first time, used by youngsters to pick Christmas presents, and remains a fascinating almanac of changing tastes. Now, after 118 years, Freeman's catalogue is no more. The company is the last of the giant mail-order retailers who call time on the big books that, in their heyday in the 1970s and 80s, thudded onto millions of British doormats twice a year. Launched in 1905, first catalogue was a 200-page collection of black-and-white drawings, mostly of clothing. Colour came in the 1920s, along with bedding, furniture and other homewares. The mail-order firm grew quickly as millions of aspirational Britons took advantage of the option to pay off goods in small monthly instalments. From now on, Freeman's is internet-only, and bosses hope website redesign and a new made-you-look motto will continue a revival in fortunes. Customer numbers slumped to an all-time low three years ago. To back up to a million this summer, up a third in six months. But the end of the catalogue is also the end of an era. And Steer... Freeman CEO says, We need to move with the times in response to how customers are shopping these days. We want Freeman's to become the digital department store of choice for customers both new and old. Freeman's was one of the big five mail order catalogues, along with Littlewoods, Empire, Hayes, and Grattan, that boomed in the wake of the Second World War. Long before I now pay later services like Barna and even credit cards, likes of Freeman's, customers pay for goods in weekly or monthly instalments. Money was collected by local agents who at one time were more than 800,000 in number. They vouched for friends and family who ordered the products on credit. Towards the end, customers arranged credit directly with Freeman's. It is the end of an era. It's not surprising, given how differently we live our lives now, says Lisa Hooker, a retail expert at PricewaterhouseCooper. Nowadays, everyone has a catalogue in their pocket, on their phone. That is not to say it is the end of printed catalogues, much smaller, more regularly printed catalogues are still popular with some shops and their customers. Matalan, White Company, Majestic and Sosander make them work. Odin is considering bringing back its catalogue too after it ditched it to save money, a move that was met with a backlash and a drop in sales from its loyal customers who clearly missed flicking through it. The old Freeman's catalogues, which ran to a thousand plus pages, will be remembered fondly.
old editions are like flicking through a history book of how Britons lived over the decades, a glimpse into the past, a social history of shopping. But that's what we have done. In the 50s, the 280 pages of the 1955 edition really show a different time. Women's fashion seems almost unrecognisable from today, and outfits go noticeably less skin. There are no bikinis on the beach. Instead, women model one-piece swimsuits. Leisure wear for men is a knitted short-sleeved cardigan. Children's clothes are much smarter too. School clothes for boys are two-piece suits featuring a jacket and shorts. Rather than tumble dryers, were two pages of clothes ringers. Forget air fryers, the fanciest kitchen gadget was a hand-powered whisk. Hawkins Handy Mix eats, mixes, whips to perfection, and in addition, mashes potato, and is a wonderful time and labour saver. Similarly, for the garden, lawn mowers were neither petrol, electricity or battery, and pushed them along. By the 1960s, Freeman's was growing into one of the country's biggest retailers, and the 63-64 catalogue had grown too, to 698 pages. It was witness to the arrival of time-saving gadgets and appliances for the home, now mostly powered by electricity. Washing machines, vacuums and hair dryers looked nothing like they do today though. And there's also one gadget that didn't make it to today. The tea's made. Costing just under £22, eye-watering 370 in today's money, it makes tea, lights lamp and wakes you up with a gentle alarm. The petrol-powered lawnmower from Suffolk Punch would make things easier in the garden for £29, 19 shillings and sixpence, £500 in today's money. Surprisingly, there were few toys. The one that jumps out is a set of Frontiersman toy guns at a time when cowboy movies were popular. And Bill will conclude The Changing Face of Freemans next week. Of course, all the Freeman's clothes were photographs, uh, photographed using models, but none probably quite like Ellie Goldstein, who is a British model with Down syndrome. Soon I'll read this piece, which was a talk by Ellie and her mum with Cassio Delgado. The day in 2001, when Yvonne Goldstein gave birth to her daughter Ellie, the nurse turned to her in the hospital room and said, Last month we had one of these babies, and the mum left it here. What do you want to do? Do you want to do that? By one of these babies, the nurse meant a baby with Down syndrome. Yvonne remembers, in her just-given-birth haze, being shocked and confused by the suggestion that she might want to abandon her baby. We didn't know what to say. My husband Mark and I just looked at each other. I don't think we even answered the nurse. Earlier the lead doctor had brought the newborn to Yvonne and said, This is Ellie. She's got Down syndrome. 
She won't walk, she won't talk, and she won't go to university. During pregnancy, Yvonne's tests had shown a very low risk of the baby having Down syndrome, so Ellie's diagnosis was a shock. The new parents were pointed to leaflets, and that was about it. When I think back to the comments that day, I still feel angry and emotional about it. It's quite raw, and honestly, it feels like just yesterday. It was handled horrendously, like the staff forgot I was a human being, and that Ellie was too. Since that day in 2001, Yvonne has had truly amazing support from medical staff during the frequent hospital contact throughout Ellie's life, but those first comments were not only insensitive and ignorant, but also wrong. Ellie, who lives with her parents in Ilford, East London, not only walks and talks, but went to a mainstream primary and secondary, and then studied performing arts at college. She is also, to her parents' utter surprise, now a model who has fronted Gucci's unconventional beauty campaign, making her the first person with Down syndrome to pose for a luxury brand. Five years ago, Ellie was scouted by Zebedee Management, an agency that celebrates disabled, visibly different models. She's since done photo shoots for Adidas and Superdrug campaigns and been on the cover of British Vogue. She's so busy, in fact, that when I ask to interview 21-year-old Ellie and her mum, there are so many modelling jobs in the diary, the only free time is just before 8am on a Wednesday morning. Ellie, showing no signs of early morning fatigue, is beaming and waving at me energetically. Only a few seconds in, and I can feel how joyful it must be to spend time with her. Does Ellie have any advice for people with a disability who might find themselves underestimated or misunderstood? Don't try to change who you are for other people, she says. There isn't anything I can't achieve. People think I can't talk, so they ask my mum questions instead of asking me. I can answer most of the time if someone tries to ask me. Yvonne says people often assume that Ellie can't communicate at all. Anyone who knows Ellie knows that she can talk a lot, and there can be a reluctance to engage with her. I think it's down to fear and lack of education about disability in general, she says. Anyone can have a baby with Down syndrome. Around one in every thousand babies born in the UK will have the genetic condition, which is caused by an extra chromosome in the cells, and there are around 47,000 people in the UK with the condition. People with Down syndrome will have some level of learning disability, and some will be more independent and do things like get a job, while others will need more regular care. Half of all children with the condition will also have a heart defect, and Ellie had an operation on her heart at six months old, and has to exercise regularly now to keep it as healthy as possible. It shouldn't be a shock to see someone with a disability, says Yvonne. It should be the norm, and maybe it will be one day. Ellie being out there in the world doing modelling is, I hope, doing something to change the misconceptions. 
we were met with a fair bit of resistance when we wanted to send Ellie to mainstream schools and one parent told me irritatedly that Ellie should be in a special school but Ellie was happy where she was. Her happiness, Yvonne says, was mainly down to Ellie's learning support assistant who gave her one-on-one -on -one time and often took her out of busy big classes to give other children time and space if Ellie found things tough and had a meltdown. She took her on days out and gave her the time she needed to thrive. People's improved understanding of Down syndrome is slow going but things are getting better, says Yvonne. Sometimes Mark and I just look at each other and burst out laughing at how surreal life is now with Ellie doing all these shoots. How did we get here? I ask Ellie if she's surprised that she, a woman with Down syndrome, is all over the magazine covers. No, I'm not surprised, she grins. I always liked dancing and singing and dressing up. Is modelling hard? No, it's easy. I just wear nice clothes and pose and they take photos of me. Everyone there's really kind to me. I'm quite a cheeky girl. I'm not a diva yet, but I did ask for a Fanta orange and a croissant on a photo shoot. Makeup and clothes are a love of Ellie's, and so are books, sleepovers and holding someone's hand if they get upset. She also loves spending time with her baby nephew, Blake. In Against All Odds, a book Ellie and her mum have written about life with Down syndrome, Ellie also mentions she enjoys flirting. I ask her for some tips in case they come in handy for me sometime. I'm very good at flirting, she says. You tell them they're gorgeous. You tell them you want to marry them one day and you can call them your Prince Charming. She shows me how to look at a man properly, a kind of surreptitious side-eye glance, noted. But also be direct, she says, and ask them, do you want to be my boyfriend? Quite a few prospects have said yes to Ellie. I've got four or five boyfriends at the moment, and I've had ten or twenty, but I can't remember them all. There was a boy she dated at sixteen for several months, her first kiss in fact, who also had learning difficulties, although not Down syndrome. We went for ice cream and for lunch. Our mums sat nearby to check things were all right. Then there was an actor with Down syndrome who was great fun, but she was okay when they broke up. I try not to feel too upset. I do sometimes get sad like anyone else does, but I do feel happy about my life most of the time. Boyfriends are all very well, but Ellie has bigger fish to fry. I want to go to America and do more modelling, she says. During the pandemic, she had to turn down a US shoot for Rihanna's beauty brand Fenty because of Covid travel issues and health risks. I want to do more dancing and go on TV too. It's so nice when people encourage me to do things. We should all encourage people. For Yvonne, it's been a long road since those first dark days. And while it hasn't always been easy, it's been full of happiness. I just wish we'd been told back then, in our confused state, what an amazing, joyful life was waiting for us with Ellie. Ellie pats her mum on the hand and beams again. 
I'm cheeky, I know, she says, turning back to me with a smile. I'm just Ellie. I am me. Over the last few months, Margaret's read a number of pieces by Susie Dent, the lexicographer best known for her dictionary corner on TV's Countdown programme. But here Susie says, Fear not, the mobble fubbles will soon pass. Listen now to be enlightened. At this time of year, it's traditional for me to turn to Twitter and offer up mobble fubbles as my word of the day. These are the 17th century equivalent of the Sunday evening end of holiday blues, an emotional trough that sucks us in as we ruefully contemplate a return to work. But I'm beginning to appreciate that this isn't the whole picture. For all its initial appeal, Time Out doesn't always live up to the hype. In fact, writers have voiced a very different scenario, that where idleness goes, existential dread follows, as well as what journalist Janice Turner calls the state of being evil when bored, the chaotic consequence of suddenly having time on your hands. There is, it seems, a fine line between headspace and head case. The build-up to the summer holidays is inevitable. Society programmes us to long for the week or two in the summer when we can finally stand still and ditch what the Germans called Allkrankheit, the hurry sickness that sees us endlessly chasing tales and deadlines that stay forever out of reach. And so, like birds, our urge to migrate becomes irresistible. It is said that even caged songbirds obey a magnetic compass by turning towards the path of their free relative's annual flight. German has a word for this too, Zugenruhe, a migratory anxiousness that is as discombobulating as it is irrepressible. Such nervous excitement is the catalyst for a whole set of other emotions as holidays come closer. On the one hand, we may feel panergic, ready for anything, while on the other, the fear of anticipointment, disappointment from something to eagerly look forward to, is already looming large. This time we can turn to Norwegian for a fitting word for the holiday preamble. Grudleder consists of two words, gru, dread, and gleder, happy. Together, and you get a verb that roughly translates as dread something happily. And finally the day arrives, the date we've been fixated upon through the chillsome drudgery of the winter months when we can throw off the shackles of normal life and set off for sunshine, sambuca and sloth. But at what cost? In the Times, James Marriott articulates one possible outcome for many of us, I sympathise in the new film with Barbie, who finds herself asking in the midst of an extravagantly enjoying party, do you ever think about dying? Hello, August angst. Angst is a morbid fear about the human condition. More broadly, it has come to encompass psychological stresses, including, as Cyril Connolly pithily put it in the 1940s, Remorse about the past, guilt about the present, anxiety about the future. Not quite the holiday package we signed up for. Less adrenalised but equally debilitating is ennui. 
when the emails stop and the days stretch ahead, ennui combines world weariness with apathy as we finally turn off our engine. It's not all bad though, particularly if you're French. Camus, Sartre and Proust all found inspiration in the listlessness of the spare hours. The poet Gérard de Nerval banished it by taking a lobster for walks in Paris's Palais Royal. Angst and ennui can occasionally be stifled by copious amounts of food and alcohol. Not for nothing does the 18th century drinker's dictionary list going to Barbados as a euphemism for getting hammered. The aim, of course, is to achieve calopsia, a rather more elegant version of beer goggles, describing a state in which everyone and everything looks beautiful. Of course, those same goggles may be less beery and more rose-tinted, as we remember the halcyon days of useful summers when we achieved ataraxy, which the Epicureans of ancient Greece considered to be a state of true happiness, when our emotions are unruffled and fancy-free. The closest that some of us might achieve is Swadder, the final entry in Joseph Wright's 19th century English dialect dictionary, where it is defined as a drowsy, stupid state of body and mind. I find it comforting to know that a ready-made lexicon exists for whatever emotions a holiday brings our way. When language goes before us, it shows that others have felt just the same. It seems many of us are recognising that a change of space and pace can be bewildering. A fitting word, etymologically, for it is all about wandering into the unfamiliar and stepping into the wild. So if and when the mubble fubble set in, it's worth remembering that there is something to be said for normality and that our holiday emotions, like our suitcases, rarely arrive unscuffled. Besides, if we're looking for another source of happy dread, there's always Christmas. So, now we know, know it all. From Susie's musings, we turn back to the clock to the turn of the last century with Alan, as she recounts more of the ways of Coventry life over a hundred years ago in hurdy-gurdy days. Our gran... Dad's mum lived with us. At least we lived with her, as it was her house, such as it was. She had lived there all her life, as had her parents before her. Our grandfather had died long before we were born. Apparently Gran had given birth to more children, but they had all died with convulsions, which were very prevalent in those days because of bad feeding. One of them, a girl, had lived to be about ten years old, but died of brain hemorrhage. Our dad had suffered very hard childhood. His mother had to go out to work doing other people's washing for a few bob, leaving him as soon as he could walk to run about the yard with a tin bottle tied around his neck with milk and water in it. The neighbours used to keep an eye on him, but they had their own problems, and if he didn't cry and yell, they didn't bother about anything else. Consequently, when his mother came home, worn out and tired after a day at the wash tub, he would run down the yard to meet her with his pants full and bow-legged, stinking to high heaven, expecting her to pick him up. Instead, she would box his ears, which made him yell and sent him staggering away from her. Poor Gran, 
No wonder when she got old she snapped and snarled at everybody, sneering at us for being brought up like fine ladies, as she called it. Ain't natural living here. They'll all turn out badens, go mark my words. She sent Dad to school at three years of age, the same as Grace was when she went. He went to the same school, St. Michael's, and left on the 17th of April, 1888, at the age of eleven. The schoolmaster gave him a certificate, which was called a labour certificate, which had to be handed to his first employer. This was the grocer's round the corner in Earl Street, the same shop where later Grace bought the three penny worth of bacon bits. He started as an errand boy for two and sixpence a week. Gran was a small woman with a straight raven black hair, which she wore in a Madonna style with a bob at the nape of the neck, with a very wide parting in the middle of the head. She had large brown eyes which seemed to look right through you. In high society she would have been considered a beauty, but her life had been so terribly hard it had coarsened her, and she had been more concerned with the struggle for existence for herself and our dad than to bother about appearance. Although she was sixty years of age, her hair was still jet black, but she was very deaf and always imagined everybody was talking about her and poking fun at her. She only had one tooth left at the front, the others having fallen out over the years, and this one tooth looked like a big fang. When she got in temper over anything, she would hiss and snarl like an old witch. The fang being loose would move about at her mouth, and we were terrified at being left alone with her. In some strange way she loved Grace, but she didn't care for me, because I was resembled ma'am, and Grace was like our dad. We never saw her dressed up, she always used to wear a coarse apron and a man's cap on her head with a peak at the back, and wore hobnail boots on her feet. Her longest journey was to the pub at the bottom of the yard, to have a jug filled with every night with a pint of ale for a few coppers. She would then put it on the hob, make up a roaring fire, and to the accompaniment of the crickets in the hearth, it would sizzle and bubble. Then she put the poker in the fire, and when it was red hot, she would plunge it into the beer for a jug, with a loud hiss, and that was her supper, with a noggin of bread and cheese and onion. Grace and I used to wait for her to start on her supper, because she then she would pull up her skirt as high as she could, so that the hot fire would warm right up to her legs. She wore what she called open drawers, and the heat of the fire would make her smell horrible. She was a very crude old woman, deaf as a post, and didn't care for anybody. When she wanted to pass water at night-time, she would go into a sort of cubby-hole under the stairs where a bucket was kept for all of us to use in a case of emergency, to save going right up to the backyard in the dark. She would squat on top of the bucket, making a loud noise, which sounded as though the lock gates of the canal had opened. She couldn't hear it herself, being so deaf. She wouldn't care anyway. Grace and I used to hide our faces with shame. If she saw us and our man wasn't there, she would hiss and snarl at us, frightening us to death. The neighbours all knew her, and if Ma'am had to go anywhere, which she did, sometimes weren't a shilling or two, waiting at tables or washing up, she would ask them to listen, and if they heard any screaming or crying to come in. But they never did, as they were scared as her as we were. Ma'am knew that we were frightened of being alone with Gran, but she had no choice. We were so in need of the money she earned as Dad spent every evening at the pub at the bottom of the yard. 
You'll remember that last week Dave and Graham were really enjoying themselves revisiting the Black Country Living Museum and now find them more changes since their visit when Graham was just 16. Oh, right, so well, we know, Graham. Inside the uh, barbers, yeah. Okay, right. They used to, because um, yeah, the barbers got red and white stripe, and that's because they used to do things like um, Denser Street and pull people's teeth out. That's it, and that's, that's the sign of the blood and bandages. Yeah, they used to be a barber surgeon, yeah. That's right. We're in 1956 now, uh, so this is the year, what, uh, yeah. this is set up. Yeah, the barber chair. Were you still pulling out teeth in 1956? No, no, it was more, no, that was way back, no, it was, it would have been shaving um, and, you know, normal barbering by me. Hey, Andrea, in the barber shop, so the next door is the ladies' hairdressers. Yeah. Did they say something about, uh, you've got a tea set there? Yes, it's an original tea set, um, from well, from the 1940s, we think, and yeah. it was actually Phyllis's. Okay, uh, so uh, they used to serve tea and biscuits for the, 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 the customers? Yes, they had. Excellent. That's <laughs> lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, right, we have an older street here, don't we, Graham? Yeah, you've got the, uh, the school hall, and you've got fish and chips restaurant, and you've got uh, menswear specialists, you got the Elephant and Castle uh, pub, and you got the workers in cheats at the uh, top of the uh, road. Yeah. There is a bottle and glass inn. Uh, I've seen that before. Yes, uh, one of the uh, locations that used for uh, Stan and Ollie film. They also used the fish and chip restaurants as well, and the fun fair. Okay, in the Lol and Hardy film about about Lol and Hardy. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Hello there, I've been to a gentleman, the blacksmith, what's your name? My name's Matt, and I'm the black the chain maker at the Black Country Living Museum. Actually, can you talk about the chain and the anchor for the Titanic? Was that made locally, the Black Country? Yes, it was uh, made in a place called Noah Hingley's. Yeah. This was a place called Neverton, just a couple of miles from the Black Country Living Museum. Yeah. And this is where they made a lot of chain for the area, especially for the Titanic. Yeah. It was a very unique chain. Something that they've been tasked with because 90% of chain that was made in the black country went all around the world. We were so well known for it that we were the only ones that was really produced in the UK. There was a couple of us, but they never tested it. Okay. So the chain wasn't that strong. It reached right across the earth to where they met to a blue star who made the Titanic. Now, they didn't just want the chain. They wanted something else, the anchor as well. Yeah. The chain was five inches thick. Yeah. Each link stood about two and a half foot high. It took six men six hours just to make one link. Each link weighed half a ton. There's over 400 yards of chain on the Titanic with over 600 links. It was a tremendous feat. Yeah. Now to actually make it, it was all made by hand. In fact, we had a couple of hammers here and uh, that was actually used on the Titanic. One was a 28 pound hammer, which is about 12 and a half kilograms. There's another one with two handles in it that's 56 pounds, so 25 kilograms. 
to operate these hammers what they had to do is they would have one man at each side they would lift the head of the hammer up and behind them there will be another man holding the head of the hammer waiting for the, fire, the metal to come out of the fire as they brought it out the person at the back pushed they used that momentum to strike as they started to lift it up just enough there's another man with a 28 pound hammer would then strike as well he, as he lifted up a slightly more, the person who stood behind would grab another 28 pound and he would strike as well. Meaning, by that time, the two men with the double-handed hammer could then strike. It was a constant beat, all day long, in front of a hot forge, in and out of the forge, forging this link. At the end of the day, they would have finally achieved it after not only bringing up the temperature of the metal up to 1400 centigrade when you think about that water boils at 100 so extremely hot and that way they could fire weld the metal where the process where they heat up the metal so it gets molten at that point once it starts to melt sparks spray out from the metal and they would hit it at that point the molten metal inside the metal was spread out fusing the metal they had to do it multiple times to get something that thick to fuse together and there was one extra thing that they added just at the end it's a stud bar piece of bar that had been pulled and pressed at the side which got lips on and they'll stick in between so when they close the, me- the link it would cool down and that would hold it in place this bar meant that the metal would hold more strength and not only that having the bar in the way it meant that as the chain twisted with the anchor on the end of it it could only go so far because the bar would prevent it from actually twisting anymore this prevents any chain from tangling meaning that not only was it strong and it held the weight of the ship because that's what chain does it holds the weight and the spies go into the ground keeping it in place but it also meant it could never tangle because who would want to untangle the Titanic chain? That's right, and the, 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 the Titanic hasn't moved for 100 years, hasn't it? Oh yeah, and it's still staying in place. I mean, that's a very good anchor to achieve that for all this time. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was great. Well. Thank you. Thank you. Right, okay. We have a skipping rope across the, the cobbled street uh, from a lamppost. And there's some skipping songs on the blackboard. Yeah. yeah, one uh, buckle machine, one two buckle machine, B four shut the door, five six pick up sticks, seven eight lay them straight, nine ten this is the end. Charlie Chaplin went to France to teach the ladies how to dance, so that's what he skipped to. And we're going in the Methodist Chapel now. Right, my, na- my name is Peter Clark, and I, uh, for many years, was a Methodist minister. Oh, yeah. So when, when, um, I have a lot of roots in the black country. When yeah. I retired six years ago, I was thinking about what I might do. I knew of this place, and so I volunteered to come along a day a week to talk to people about life in the black country and about the involvement of the Methodist Church with ordinary working people in the black country over uh, 250 years. Wow. And your family were involved in the, the Methodist Church, were they? They were, yes. Um, it, when the coal in Bilston ran out, my grandfather and family moved to the Canuck yeah. area yeah. Uh, because there was still deep mining yeah. there. But for generations, his generation and generations before, they, they were all black country miners good. from the 18th century Excellent. Yeah. when the black country was growing. Great. And we're about to have choir practice. Oh, it's right. 
think of the Black Country Museum, Graham? Yeah, it's very good, yeah. It's improved a lot, hasn't it? Yeah. We've got lots more buildings and that, and the street scene, and the 1940s and 60s. Fantastic. Okay, that's all, that's all from our visit to the Black Country Living Museum. Bye from me, Dave Monks. Bye from Graham. Concluding that visit to the Black Country Living Museum also concludes this edition of Outlook. So from the team and myself, Nigel Hewan, it's goodbye till next week.